Good evening. Here we are with another installation of our series on the transformation of the soul. This is Transformation of the Soul, part four. And last week we left off with the scripture, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, uh, and he's about to insert an oxymoron, he says, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The scripture speaks to the ongoing development and transformation of our souls as employed by the spirit and the word of God. His ultimate objective in this is our conformation to the image and the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. How does God do it? He doesn't just do it in high worship. How does he do it? He doesn't just do it in intense intercession, but he brings our souls through and to a process of transformation by allowing us to have tribulations that we glory in because they release us into a place where we develop perseverance and then that perseverance develops the God kind of character in us and then that character gives way to a supernatural hope uh, that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, by the love that he's given us, but it's a hope that doesn't disappoint. It's a hope that is connected to the Christ in us, the hope of glory. So it's a hope that gives way to the manifestation of God's intention and his desire, all right? So his ultimate objective in all of this process is that confirmation to the likeness and the image of Christ where we become the exact replica, the image and the mirror of his person and personality. And so here we're not talking about theoretical. We're not talking about in theory, but in actuality, where what comes out of us and what we produce and manifest literally is the image, the replica, and um, the personification of the man Christ Jesus. This is an internal work that is wrought in us by the Spirit of God, but it is lived out and manifested on the outside through the Christ life that is flowing through us. Wholeness and wholesomeness is God's perfected state of maturity for the believer. You need to write that down. Wholeness and wholesomeness is God's perfected state of maturity for every believer, not for the believer to live beneath their privilege, not for the believer to live beneath the standard of Christ's righteousness, but literally God intends for every single one of us to have wholeness and wholesomeness as it pertains to our lives. Our anchor scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, states it like this, may the God of peace himself, the God of peace, so that's the God of shalom, it's the God of nothing missing, nothing broken, nothing lacking, which means that the totality, uh, the consummate totality of everything that could ever exist is in him. From that place, him as the God of nothing being out of order, nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing being short-sighted, the fullness of all things, it says, may that God sanctify you wholly, and then may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second John 2 and 2 says it this way, beloved, I pray that you would prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prosperous or uh, in commensurate uh, measurement with the prosperity of your soul. 
So your entire spirit, soul, and body are target areas for the whole sanctification in the life of the offspring of God. So when it says, when he may, uh, may he sanctify you wholly, it means wholesomely, as we established last week. So that is your body, that is your soul, and that is your spirit. So the target areas for God's sanctification is not just your spirit, not just your body, not just your activities, but it is that body, soul, and spirit that you would be preserved completely blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's objective. Hear that, that you, body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless, all right? Now, prosperity and health are connected to the caliber of the life, the health, and the prosperity that are in your soul, which is why we have this series, because we have people that are prospering in certain areas of their lives, but they're not experiencing wholeness. They're not experiencing wholesomeness, all right? This word is really going to change people. We allow this word to get into our souls and get into our hearts and dig up things that need to be uh, dug up. This is going to bring us into another level of prosperity on a multiplicity of levels in our lives, all right? Somebody shout amen. Here's the intention of God. It is to prepare us to live in his world eternally by acclimating us to the reality of his world and the life of his world while we are still on the earth. This is why the Lord puts such an emphasis on the things of the spirit. You have to realize that God is spirit in every single thing that he does. He does it out of the eternality of his realm of existence. Okay, so everything that God does in the life of the believer, every message, every prophecy, every anointing, every encounter in the presence of God, every experience of his glory, every uh, divine intervention is to acclimate us to the reality of his life his world, his existence, and then to get us into a place of living out that reality, even while we are still walking on this natural earth. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not things on the earth, or not on the things on the earth, for you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ, who is our life, appears. Christ, who is our life, not just living our life unto him or for him, but he himself is our actual life force. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right. So being raised with Christ is the direct reference to our baptism, being buried into death with him so that just as he was raised from the dead, we also would be raised in like manner to a brand new life. Scripture reference for that is Romans 6 and 4. You cannot live the Christ life and live your own life. So when we deal with this scripture here uh, in Colossians 3 and also the scripture in Romans 6 and 4 that talks about us being buried with Christ through baptism into death. I'm going to show you in a minute that the actual word used for death there is literal death. It literally is a literal death. So that means that God is taking for granted that we understand that by being buried into Christ through baptism unto death, that we are literally dying to ourselves. We are dying to our life. We are dying to our world. We are dying to our existence, but in the same way that he was resurrected from the dead, when we come up out of that burial of baptism into Christ unto death, then we are now resurrected. 
we are now raised to live an entirely new life. And I think that this is where believers get tripped up because they they, want to mix their life with the Christ life. They want to mix their life just with the benefit of the salvation that he has afforded us, not realizing that entry into salvation, the prerequisite for it is the death to our own selves and the death to our own lives. All right. The scripture here says to set your mind Um, which is translated by the King James Version as affections. Uh, The New American Standard Bible translates it literally as the mind, but it says set your mind or your affections on the things above. Now, the Greek word for that, uh, which incidentally is both the um, translated word affections and the translated word mind, the Greek word is phroneo, which means to feel or to think. So we're talking about the capacity for your mental processes as well as your emotional processes. So mental intelligence, emotional intelligence, all right? It's all encompassed in the Greek word phreneo, which was translated affections and also translated mind. Set your mental capacity, set your your emotional intelligence or capacity on the things that are above. It also means to have an opinion of oneself. So this is even what you think about yourself, not just your system of thought, but the actual conclusion of thought concerning yourself. It also means to think or to judge, or it also means what one's opinion actually is. And then it elucidates it further by saying, be of the same mind, agree together, cherish the same views, be harmonious with, to direct one's mind to a thing. It means to seek or to strive for or to seek one's interest or advantage. It means to be of one's party, right? So we're talking about not Democrat or Republican, but God's party, right? Or to side with him in public affairs. It means that we come to the place where our public opinion is harmonious with his opinion. So it says to set your mind and affections, your phreneo, uh, where Christ is and where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now watch this, because it, where, where it says set all of these things where Christ is, it means that it's giving us a different vantage point. It's giving us or calling us or commanding us to adopt an entirely different perspective. And he contrasted with not having our minds set on the things that are on the earth. So the contrast is either we're going to think, we're going to feel, we're going to judge, we're going to reason with a system that is only focused on the things that are on the earth, or we're going to think, we're going to feel, we're going to reason, we're going to judge with a system that has the vantage point of where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So imagine the difference between our finite ability to see and to perceive and to discern or having the ability to see from the perspective of where Christ is seated with all of the works complete, where he is seated on the other side of the finished work of the cross, where he is seated looking at everything from an eternal vantage point. This scripture is telling us that we don't even have legal access or right or permission to only view things from a finite temporal realm and reality, but that we are called as believers to only view and to see things and to set every single part of our solical machinations into the place, into the realm, into the perspective, and from the vantage point of where Christ is seated in heavenly places. It means that our agreements and our alignments, even our cherished viewpoints, our opinions and our judgments and our affections all have to be situated from that place. 
Now, that's a place of maturity for most believers, because if you just peruse just for a moment, most social media platforms or even in conversations with people or even when you look at the actions and the activities of people. And I'm doing that right now as an apostolic leader in another dimension of where God is speaking and dealing with the kingdom and dealing with creation. I'm seeing things from a different perspective. And we're looking at how people have confessed all kinds of things. People will tell you anything. Anything will come out of their mouth. But when you expect to see the things that they have professed line up with their actions, sometimes there's a gap. Sometimes there's a huge disparity. And so the question now in my spirit that is ringing out is, did you mean anything that you said? Because what you're doing now, your disposition, your actions, your attitudes, your disposition, all of those things are not lined up with what you said. And so we're dealing with uh, the reality that there are people that have professed a thing in Christ, but yet, yet their gaze and where their soul really is, their real soul capacity, their real soul manifestation is still centered upon the earth. It is still centered upon their desires. It is still centered upon their own misguided loyalties and commitments. It's still centered upon the things that they have lifted up over and above the will, the purpose, and the intention of the Almighty God. This is the time for us to shift. This word is coming to shift us. This series is coming to show us where we are and to give us the ability and the wherewithal to move into the realm where we ought to be, to come into the place where we ought to be, where we ought to function, where we ought to uh, view from, where we ought to perceive from, where we ought to conclude all of our judgments and belief systems from. Somebody say amen, glory to God, all right? The renewal of the mind is not meant to, insin to insinuate that your mind or everything that your mind produces is trash or garbage. All right. So when the Bible talks to us about the renewal of the mind, it's not to say that your thoughts, your logical pontifications, that the things that you conclude and come up with, it's not to say that it's useless. All right. But the renewal of the mind and the need for the renewal of the mind is to bring our thought patterns and our solical dispositions and our affections and our feelings to a place of harmonious interaction with God's thoughts concerning everything, all right? And so watch this because the Bible tells us that God's thoughts, that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours as far as the east is from the west. That's the distance between his thoughts and our thoughts. So it doesn't mean your thoughts are bad. It doesn't mean your intentions are bad. It doesn't mean that your conclusions and your judgments are bad. It just means that there's a gap between what you conclude and what God said and how he thinks and how um, he expects us to think and to feel and believe. So when we talk about the renewal of the mind, it's not just about getting sin out of your mind. It's not just about moving you from sin consciousness to a more righteous um, uh, apprehension of thought or truth. That's not what it is. Literally, the renewal of the mind is to bring our mind into the realm, into the dimension of actually taking on the mind of Christ. It's not about freedom from sin as much as it is giving us a heavenly perspective and vantage point. How do you do that? Your regular human soul is not predisposed to thinking and feeling and functioning in the Christ realm and in Christ consciousness. Your natural, even after you are born again, this is why the Bible talks about uh, being able to prove the will of God, Romans 12, only after 
our minds have been transformed. That means without the process of the transformation of the mind, you're never going to wind up with the will of God. How do you get to the will of God? Through a process of acclimating your soul to his thoughts, to his feelings, to his sentiments, to his perspective, and to his vantage point. Somebody shout the renewal of the mind. Somebody say amen, amen, and amen, all right? We cannot operate from his mind, from his world, and from his realm with a carnal, finite, or limited template. I'm going to say that again because it was good enough to say it again. We cannot operate from the mind of God, the world of God, or the realm of God utilizing a carnal, finite, or temporal template or limited template. This is why after you have your best prayer time and after you have your very best venting session with your very best friend or after you've gone to a psychologist or a counselor or a therapist and you've let all your feelings and emotions out, this is why after all of that is said and done, you still need to come and sit under a transformative word because only the word of God has the ability to transform the soul. Somebody say amen. Only the word of God. You have to sit under a taught, under a preached word of truth and power that has been commissioned by God to aid in the facilitation of the transformation of your mind and your soul. Because the word of God is the only agent in creation that's going to do it. There's a lot of people praying and some of them are stuck right at the level of maturity that they're praying at. Because prayer doesn't transform you. Prayer brings power. Prayer brings revelation. Prayer opens up spheres. But prayer doesn't transform you. The presence of God will transform you. Uh, the word of God will transform you. But God and his word are one. Somebody shout hallelujah, amen. And you can't be in the presence of God without entreating him as the word. And usually when you're in his presence, he's saying something to you, which means that the word is still coming into your soul in a way and working on it in a way that it has to bring about a process of transformation. Somebody say amen. So you still need to sit under a transformative word because the word of God is the only agent in creation that has the ability and the power and watch this, the assignment to bring transformation and renewal to your life and to your soul, all right? Now, the Bible says here in this scripture, and I'm winding down, it says, for you died. The word there in the Greek is apopnesco, which literally means a literal death, all right? He said, and you have died, all right? Let's read it again, Colossians 3, all right, and verse 3. It says, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, so, so, in God. so you died, all right? Apopnesco means literal human physical death. So according to the scripture, when we're buried with Christ into baptism, we literally die. Literal, literal death. Flower, coffin, graveyard, flowers, funeral home, dead. You are dead, but then it references your life. Well, what is that life? The life, the Greek word for it is zoe. It is the literal life of God. All right. It says the life that you live is now hid with Christ in God. So you die to your life. You die to yourself. You die to your world. You die to your perspective. You die to your emotional uh, disposition. You die to your mental reasoning. You die to all of your limited human capacity. And then you take on the Zoe life of God. Come on. 
which is created or recreated in Christ after the order of Christ. And then he takes that very life structure and system and hides it in Christ in God. This is a new life that comes after your figurative or metaphoric death. This life begins at your salvation, but it is ever increasing toward the full consummation and manifestation of your glorified life that happens when Jesus Christ, who is our actual life, when he appears. That glory isn't just an instant change. Those who appear with him in glory have begun the process of transformation into that glory and into that glorious realm long before the appearing of Christ. Their lives on earth existed in him and consisted of him, which means that this process of glory began to be unfolded in them so that by the time he appears, they get to appear with him in the same glory. It's not just all of a sudden you're you and you live your whole life as you, and then all of a sudden, bam, you're transformed into an image of glory. No, that process of glory has been being inwrought in you by the Holy Spirit throughout the entirety of your salvation. It culminates when he appears and we find out we're just like him. We find that out. It doesn't mean we just got like him when we see that we're just like him is going to reveal to us how much like him we really are. So when the Bible speaks about in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, how we're going to be changed, that transformation is not the transformation into his likeness and image. The transformation is our corruption or, or corruptible self putting on the incorruptible body. That's the change. That's the transition that's going to happen. But the glory and the process of the glory is not going to happen instantaneously at that moment. That's not what that means. This is how Hebrews, the sixth chapter, could say this to us. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, which means they're no longer in darkness. They're walking in light. Their eyes are open. The eyes of their understanding, the eyes of their heart are open. Uh, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. It's not an earthly gift. It's not a carnal gift, all right? These are flesh and blood people who have had a, uh, uh, an experience of enlightenment in Christ, and it has positioned them to become tasters or partakers of the heavenly gift, all right? They've tasted the heavenly gift. That means they lived even on the earth in another dimension and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That scripture is loaded because it's telling us that as believers, that we are we're, we're living as, as human beings, but our sustenance, what we are partaking of, what we are tasting of, what we are experiencing is from a whole other realm. We're partakers of the Holy Spirit. We've become a part of the Holy Spirit. And he's a part of us. We've tasted the good word of God. That's not just some three points in a close, but the good word of God, the powerful word of God, the revelatory word of God and the powers of the age to come. So we're alive now, but we're tapping into dimensions of powers for an age and in an age and of an age that hasn't even come into existence yet. We've tasted it. We've experienced it. 
So this is why the Bible can say, because all of that is what's going on, which is a part of our soul's transformation, which is also a part of us becoming uh, transformed into the image and likeness of his son, which is also a part of us being partakers of the glory. This is why the scripture says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance if all of that has happened and they still fall away. Where else are they going to go? There's nothing to save them. The Bible says they crucified again for themselves, not in actuality, but for themselves, the son of God and put them to an open shame. You have exhausted your reference point for everything that brings you into the saving knowledge and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've experienced all of that, encountered all of that, that means you've prayed your best prayers, you've read your best scriptures, you've done your best fasting, you've lived your best righteousness, you've done every single thing, you've tapped into the powers of the age to come, you've walked with God, you've been a partaker of the Holy Spirit, you've tasted the heavenly gift, you've experienced, you've digested the good word of God. If you go through all of that and still fall away, there's no way to renew you to repentance because that's how powerful that experience and encounter is. So what is that telling us? It means that God's objective, again, as I'm reiterating, in this process is to acclimate us to his realm. It's to cause us to be earthly citizens that live in a heavenly dimension and that manifest on the earth from a heavenly dimension. They used to say that uh, you're so spiritually minded, you know, earthly good. That's not Bible. That's, that's antichrist. That is antichrist philosophy. You better be in the earth in which your mind, in your affection, in your perspective, in your rationale, in your emotions, in your mental capacity. You better be here with all of that up there because that's what the scripture says. We're dealing with the transformation of the soul, the very life of who you are, the person of who you are in the core of your being. Let this word transform you. Let it take root. Let it bring about the manifestation of change and transformation and growth. And you are about to be catapulted into a level of prosperity in the things of the spirit, in the things that pertain to this world and business and purpose and destiny and family and relationships and money in every way. I love it. I wish above all things that you would be in health, good health and prosper even as your soul prospers the transformation of the soul.